The Lord be with you. We'll, we'll try again. The Lord be with you. So good to see you. You can have a seat. Uh, if you're new here this morning, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life East. It's a joy to have you in our house uh, with us. New Life East is one of eight congregations of New Life Church spread out across the city. And uh, we meet here every 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. on Sundays. And so it's good to have you in our house this morning. Um, I am so happy to be back with you. I was preaching at New Life North, our main campus, last Sunday. And I uh, had a wonderful time up there. A ton of people came out, which was really cool. Uh, but this is home, so it's good to be with you. Happy New Year. If I haven't had a chance to wish you a Happy New Year, hope it's off to a good start. We are uh, in the book of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. And uh, one of the things, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, one of the things that we sometimes do uh, when we approach a new year is uh, we get real excited about New Year's resolutions. Do you like New Year's resolutions? Some of you, not really. It just makes you feel bad about yourself, you know. Well, good. Let's get rid of New Year's resolutions because the church is not really into that stuff anyway. What the church is really into is something called discipleship. Everybody say discipleship. Discipleship is a process whereby under the leading and the guiding, the empowerment of the Spirit, we eventually become like Jesus. And that is God's whole goal in our lives. By the way, God's goal for your life is not that you would make a lot of money, though I'm sure he'd be happy if you did. And God's goal in your life is not that everything just works out perfectly for you because this side of the kingdom, it's not going to. Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. God's goal in your life ultimately is to conform you to the image of the Son of God to make you look like Jesus. And the reason that, by the way, the reason that we uh, kind of make it our goal in life to try to make a lot of money and have all this stuff and blah, 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 like the reason why we set different goals for ourselves than what God sets for us is because that we think that if we have a lot of money or if we have the perfect family or if we have a bigger house or if we have a boat or whatever, what we think is that we're going to be, it starts with the letter H, happy. But you won't. Pop that balloon. The only thing that actually makes us happy is union with God. (laughs) When we know God, when we become as God intends us to be, that's what makes us happy. And so there are places in the scriptures where the life of discipleship, what it looks like to be conformed to Jesus, they really the whole Bible actually is one long discipleship in the same direction. But there are places in the scriptures where what God requires of us, what he desires for our lives where the call of discipleship is really like compacted in a way that's very obvious and easy to see. And this is one of those places. It's something known as the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody say the Sermon on the Mount. You say, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Because Jesus delivered it on a mountain. (laughs) Blow your mind. Which is actually interesting by itself. You know, there are these uh, comparisons. One of the things that the old theologians of the church in the first few centuries would have said about the New Testament is that a New Te- the New Testament is basically like a recapitulation of the Old Testament. Or I just read this uh, in Luther a couple days ago, Martin Luther. He said that the Old Testament is a, or the New Testament is a resurrection of the Old Testament. Whoa! Yes! So what the New Testament is doing is it's actually taking stuff in the Old Testament and showing how everything was pointing to Jesus and that Jesus is better. That's kind of sort of what Luther is getting at. And this is one of those places because there was somebody else in the Old Testament who also delivered teaching to the people from the mountain. Anybody know? 
Moses, that's right. So Jesus here, like Moses, in the thought of Israel, is like the consummate teacher. He was the one that like revealed to the people what the will of God was. And so for Matthew to have Jesus climbing up on a mountaintop is for Matthew to say, we found the true and better Moses. This is the one that Moses was pointing to, though he knew it not. This is, he's here now. So what's really interesting though, is that there are not just similarities, but there are differences between Moses and Jesus. And one of the big differences between Moses and Jesus comes right at the start of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter five. Because Moses goes up on the mountaintop and when he comes down, you remember what he gives the people? The 10 commandments. He just starts right in with what God requires. But Jesus goes up on the mountaintop and then he sits down and what does he give to the people? That's right, he gives blessings. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And all of them, as Rory taught us last week, all of them in a way are a different way of looking at reality. It's like Jesus, before he can teach us to act in the new world that God is making and bringing, he has to teach us to see that new world. And the only way that he can do that is by showing us that we, right where we are in our station in life, if we're poor in spirit, if we're mourning, if we're persecuted for righteousness, if we're trying to make peace and we feel like we're being torn apart, all of those places where it feels like life is not working, Jesus is like the kingdom belongs to you. And so he baptizes our eyes so that we can see God's new world. And then now here, starting in verse 13 this morning, he begins to teach us what God requires, showing us what the righteousness of the kingdom looks like. I'm going to be in Matthew 5, 13 to 20. Did you open to it in your Bibles? Did you open it on your phones? Do you not care about any of these things? Are you just going to be kind of rebellious and sort of listen to it with your arms folded? That's fine too. Just as we are, we're here. So Lord, here we are in your presence. Grateful for you. Grateful for your goodness, your mercy, your love. They are from of old, the psalmist said. It's the most ultimate thing in the world. It's the most ancient thing. Augustine said that you're the beauty ever ancient and ever new. You're the oldest thing in the universe. And because of how ancient and fundamental and primal you are, you're also the newest thing in the universe. You keep springing forth into our experience with freshness and vigor. And every time we meet you, that freshness rubs off on us and we come alive. So we say this morning, Holy Spirit, fall upon us. Open us up to the reality of God. Speak the name of Jesus to us. Unmake everything that needs to be unmade and lead us more deeply into our identity as folks created in the image and the likeness of God, destined to conformity with the Son, sons and daughters of the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Make that true in us this morning, we pray. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Matthew five thirteen. hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them or set them aside, but I've come to fill them up. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter 
Not the least stroke of a pen will be by any means disappear from the law until all of the things that God has intended are accomplished. And therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches, practices and teaches, these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. So Jesus gives us the blessed R's that help us see the world with fresh eyes. And then he begins to press in to forming this community to rise up into the attention of God. And one of the things that he says right out of the gate, we get this picture from Jesus, is that it is not the intention of Jesus that the church kind of hears the call of the Lord and then it goes, oh my gosh, being in the world was so awful. We hate the world, reject the world. Let's just go over here and have a nice little club. A Jesus club where we all get together and hold hands and sing kumbaya, you know, and protect ourselves from the world. But the church is to be a public community, all right? And so the witness of the church, the life of the church is open to the world. That's how the world knows who God is. And the way that he gets us into that is with these three very pregnant metaphors. First of all, he calls us the light. What does he say, actually? I'm kind of forgetting. Oh, yeah, you're the salt of the earth. That's the first one. Good thing we have the Bible here. It's not quite hidden all the way in our hearts yet, is it? He calls us the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and then a town is hid on a hill. What is he doing with these metaphors? Well, first of all, let's think about salt of the earth for a second. Salt of the earth, I think, refers to... I'm waiting for a slide. There's going to be a slide. Yes, there it is. Being the salt of the earth means that we are a people who flavor and preserve the world by a show of hands. How many of you love bland food? Now you hate bland food. It's terrible. The only reason we ever eat bland food is because our taste buds are either dead or our doctors told us that we've eaten too much salt. But salty food is good food. I made a pot of chili yesterday and somebody said as they were eating it, they said, this is salty. And I said, you're welcome. (laughs) My wife said it was too salty. What does salt do to food? Flavors it. But it doesn't do it by importing its own stuff into it. It actually brings out the latent flavors in the food. And so the paprika and the cumin and the little bit of red wine and the onions and the peppers and the meat and the Worcestershire. I'm giving you my recipe here. And the beef broth. And I did a dash of cinnamon in it yesterday, which was like... The salt actually made all of that rise up. We tasted more of what it was because the salt was present in it. That's what the church is to be in the world, that we bring out the good stuff that's in the world because of our presence in it. So we flavor the world, but we also preserve the world. Remember in the ancient world, salt, they don't have refrigeration, so you use salt to preserve meat. So think about the role of the church in the world. If the church wasn't in the world, the world would be flying to pieces. But because the church is there, the church actually helps hold the world together in the same way and by the power of the one who holds the world together by the word of his might. That's what we do. And so Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Your witness is a public witness. Number two, he says, you're the light of the world. What does light do? Light illuminates and warms. That's what the church does to the world. That the world would have no way of knowing its right hand from its left hand, up from down, right from wrong. 
But there is the church, not vindictively or angrily, but there's the church in the midst of the world saying, God has intended that we should have life and have it more abundantly. Choose life. And the world, the church keeps saying to the world what God requires. And as the world listens to the church, the world actually becomes more of what God has intended it to be. And we also warm the world with our presence and with our compassion, with our love, our generosity, our acts of mercy and sacrifice and service. We make the world a better place. Light illuminates and warms. And then he calls us a city set on a hill, which I think is a way of saying that what the church does to the world is that it provides protection and shelter for the world in the way that if you were a traveler in the ancient Near East and you saw a city set on a hill, you'd go, oh, that's a safe place to be out here. I'm vulnerable and exposed, but in there, there's protection and there's shelter. And so Paul actually says in the New Testament, one of the working presuppositions of the New Testament is that the world will come into the church. And he says that if you're all together and you're praying and prophesying and an unbeliever is there, they'll hear you doing this and they'll fall down on their knees and they'll worship God saying, God is really among you. That as they come into the church, they see that it's a foretaste of the city of God and they realize that this is the kind of community that they were made for. And so we provide protection and shelter and shade for the world. But you ask the question, how do we do that? And this is very specific about this. Verse 16 and verse 20, I think, give us the answer. Verse 16, Jesus says that in the same way, how is it that we're going to live up to our call to be salt and light in a city on a hill? Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your, say it real loud, church, see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Hold that idea in your mind. Then verse 20, Jesus says that I tell you, unless your righteousness, what's the word there? Surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. They'll, have, they'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify God. And then Jesus says your righteousness actually has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is raising the stakes, isn't it? Like it's not just like, oh yeah, we'll just go about and kind of do your thing and you'll be salty and you'll be very light and all of that stuff. But Jesus says that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the most religious people we know in our society right now, you're not actually going to live up to this vocation. Gasp. But there's a lot of hope in his words, actually. Everything that Jesus says is gospel. You just have to listen to it. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been around somebody who was genuinely, deeply good? You ever been around somebody who's genuinely, deeply good? And I'm not just talking about like, oh yeah, you know, he's a, he's a fine chap. But I'm talking about like, the, like when you're in the presence of this person, you feel goodness as like a radiant energy off of them. You ever been around somebody like that? I've been in the church my whole life. I've been met tons of people like this. But I think about meeting the great Eugene Peterson many years ago. I had an opportunity to go with some friends for a couple days to meet Eugene. Eugene is the author of the message version of the Bible and like 50 or so books or something crazy like that. And Eugene is like a superhero in my mind. And I'm going to get to spend time with him a couple days with Eugene. And I remember, you know, they lived in, um, him and his wife Jan have passed away a couple years ago, but they lived at Flathead Lake, Montana, just outside of Kalispell in this beautiful little house. And I remember just being as nervous as a little cat. You know, I'm going to meet Eugene Peterson. What's it going to be like? And I'll never forget them, Jan opening the door and Eugene standing next to her. And they welcomed us with this hospitality that was just so disarming. 
and we walked into their place. And, you know, Eugene has met everybody, and he's been everywhere. Eugene was like friends with Bono. Like, how awesome is that? Like, he's talked to these, like, incredible people, and he's had interesting conversations. And that, I remember sitting with Eugene, and Eugene held my presence and my story as though I was the most interesting person in the world to him. And I wasn't. But there was something so dignifying about his presence and disarming about his presence. And we left two or three days later and I felt like my life, and I wasn't even asking for this. We actually went there to interview him about some stuff, but just being around him, I felt like my life had been put back together again. What is that? Or I remember years ago when Mandy and I were doing ministry in Denver, we just needed some folks to talk to, be safe. And I remember a friend of mine said, well, I've got this couple that I know, Colin and Diane Campbell, they're pastors at a church across town and you should go spend some time with them. You got some stuff you're dealing with. Man, they're wise and they're discerning. They'll hold all that. And I remember as the years progressed, Mandy and I over and over and over would go to Colin and Diane and we'd sit with them and they were so good. They were so good. They would hold our story with wisdom and with love and tenderness and graciousness and wisdom. Sometimes we'd go to the church and sit with them. Other times we'd go to their house and spend time with them. There's something about being in their presence it was like wholesome. And it always put our lives back together again. And I started thinking of them as like, a, do we have any Lord of the Rings fans here? All right. The righteous remnant. Um, you know how like uh, whenever anybody's in trouble, they go and spend time with the elves in Rivendell, you know, or Lothlorien. And there's something about the air is wholesome. These people are wholesome and they're wise. And you always come out better. And I can think of in this church community, but I can think, I'm looking out at this crowd and I could name a bunch of you just off the top of my head now and I won't say, I won't name you because it would embarrass you, I think. But people who are wholesome and they're good. What is the name that the Bible gives to that atmosphere of goodness and trustworthiness? That atmosphere of like, whenever I'm around this person, I get better. Can I offer you a word that the Bible uses for it? It's holiness. It's righteousness. Do you know what righteousness is in the scriptures? If you break it all the way down, righteousness is just things being right. And when things are right, when they're as God intends, when they're set up in a good way, it means that they're safe. This building, in a way, is kind of a righteousness. It's, it's organized the way that it should be, and therefore, this building provides us with light and warmth and heat, and it's safe to be in it. A righteous life is like that. It's warm and it's safe, and you can be in it. Are you tracking with me, church? And here is the incredible good news of the gospel, is that the will of God is not just that a handful of people here and there should be this, you know, it's not like God's kind of up there in the clouds going, yeah, we need a few righteous persons out there. So Jeff, we're going to make Jeff a holy guy. And let's see, we could use, how about Marcus? Yeah, Marcus, he's good. And so we're going to put our hand on Marcus or Brooke, you know, uh, Mandy, uh, Tim. Jesus is like, come on, Lord. All right, let him in. God's not doing that. He doesn't just pick out a couple people and go, your destiny is to be like this. And meanwhile, there's the masses, the rabble of humanity. Look at what Jesus says. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Later in chapter 5, Jesus says, Matthew 5 and verse 48, be, what's the word there? As your, holy smokes. Jesus is saying this to everybody. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What's the will of God for your life? It's that you would look like him. That you would be a living, breathing expression of your father in heaven. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this. He said that the command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. Next slide. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into a god or a goddess. A dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. Next slide. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. Do you know that's the will of God for your life? That you'd reflect the glory of God You'd look like a living image of your father in heaven. The question is, how do you get there? And I think that the answer to that is buried in a contrast that Jesus sets up here in the text. He says that unless your righteousness, sir, remember, surpasses who? That of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not going to have any part in this. It has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Okay, again, the stakes are like really high because the Pharisees, And the teachers of the law, they're the professional religionists of Jesus' day. And Jesus was unsparing in his criticism of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And it wasn't that they were trying hard. That's not what Jesus was mad at. And it wasn't that they were exerting too much effort. Oh, you're just trying too hard. You're exerting too much effort at holiness. That wasn't it. With Jesus, Jesus' critique of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law went much deeper. Look at this in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 5. Everything they do is done for what? What are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law concerned about? Just what people think about me. That's it. But all they care about is surface appearance. Next slide. Check this out. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Like, you're tithing off of your... Your, the spices in your cupboard. But you, you don't even know how to do justice, mercy, or faithfulness. You fulfilled a requirement of the law at the surface, but you haven't let it get down to the depths. You should have practiced the latter, he says, without neglecting the former. Next slide. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I don't know what that means, but it sounds awful. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean. Watch this. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. Look at how nice it is. He says, but on the inside, you're full of what? Greed and self-indulgence. You're just serving yourself, blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. How do you clean the inside of a cup and dish? You got to get it submerged in the water so that if you clean the inside, what happens to the outside? It's clean, but you can clean the outside without cleaning the inside. See that? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs 
You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Next verse. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What is Jesus' complaint against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Is it that they were religious? Is it that they were trying too hard at their spirituality and all of that stuff? No. You know what he was mad about? It never got below the surface of your life. Everything was image management. You're just concerned about what people thought about you. And you never let the requirements of God penetrate down to the depths of your spirit. And had you but for a moment opened the door of your spirit up to the penetration of the living God, something might have changed in your life. You might have actually lived up to all that God requires Where does righteousness actually begin, friends? Your heart. Your heart. And you can be doing everything right on the outside, but if your heart is bad, then your life isn't going to be right. A bad heart leads to a bad life. A good heart leads to a good life. And that's the secret of the surpassing righteousness. Jesus wants what God requires to penetrate down to the depths of our being so that we do the will of God from the heart. The heart is where it happens. And if God can transform us in the heart, the seat of our desires, then he stands a chance of causing our lives to go right. The writer of Proverbs says, Proverbs 4.23 in the King James Version, I love this, keep thy heart with all Diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. When the heart goes right, the life goes right. And when the heart goes wrong, the life goes wrong. This is the sword of the Spirit that Jesus gives to us this morning. And I know this, I've seen it intimately. You've seen it intimately. I've got some good friends. Mandy and I have these good friends. Several years ago, they've been married for 20 years, about like us. Got a whole pile of kids. And a few years ago, they went through a real tough time. She made some mistakes. He made some mistakes. They said some things that they shouldn't have said. They did some things that they shouldn't have done. None of it, none of it was a deal breaker. None of it should have been a deal breaker. And we have tried the best that we can as their friends to walk with them for the last few years. And we're watching. It's the saddest thing in the world. But we're watching a marriage imploding before our very eyes. And one of them is saying, I'm so sorry. I'm willing to do whatever I can possibly do. I, wanna, I want my marriage. I want our children. I want our family. I want our home. And you know what the other one is saying? I'm done. It's over. I won't forgive. I can't move past it. That's enough. A heart closed down. And that's the difference between a marriage working and a marriage not working. And Jesus says as much in the Gospels. He says, you know, the only reason that marriages happen, he says it's not marital infidelity, though that's a hard thing to deal with. And it's not gambling and it's not addiction and it's not, it's not any of that stuff. The reason that a marriage doesn't work, he says, is because of the hardness of your heart. Do you know what the Greek word for when he says that is? Sclerocardia. You know, we talk about atherosclerosis. It's when there's a hardening of the arteries. Sclero, hardening. 
sclerocardia, cardia heart, when there's a hardening of the heart, when the heart closes down, there's no shot except via a miracle. (laughs) The whole promise of the new covenant, the whole import of the work of the spirit in our lives, friends, is to give us a soft heart. Think about what Ezekiel says, Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. This is Ezekiel prophesying the new covenant. And the Lord says, I will give you a new, it's the whole thing. And I will put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you, that's what God has come to do. The stony heart is a heart that can't feel a heart that's not vulnerable, a heart that's not open. A stony heart is a dead heart. It can't move blood. It can't supply life. An open heart, a soft heart, a vulnerable heart, that's what powers a right life. So the question is, and I'll just conclude with this, three real quick points. How do we keep a fleshy heart? How do we keep a fleshy heart? Let me give you three things. Number one, We cultivate a life of prayer. I've been a pastor for going on 20 years, and I can remember starting out my pastoral ministry, and I felt like I had all of these cool tricks for spiritual formation that I wanted to share with people. Well, try this and do this. And have you ever th- have you heard of this thing that somebody invented back in the 14th century, and it's kind of new now because we're talking about old stuff, you know? And I've come to the conclusion that the beginning and the end of the Christian life is a life of prayer. This is where it happens. We had this song that we sang when I was a kid. Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Some of you know it. Come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And we sang that, you know, as a salvation song, you know. Invite Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. It's a great song for that. But I have come to see that that is not actually just a salvation song. That's a survival song. That's what the life of prayer is. The life of prayer is realizing that you have this welter of crazy desires, anger, fear, ambition, lust, greed, And all of that has the potential to unmake your life. And so the reason that you pray, you know, sometimes I think that people think that the reason that we pray is for God's sake. You know, that God's up there and he's a little bit narcissistic and kind of bored. So he's like, you know, if you all could just like, do you realize how much I've done for you? If you would just talk to me, this relationship would be a lot better. And we start talking to God and he goes, okay, I am important. We don't pray for God's sake. Whose sake do we pray for? Our sake. We're the ones that need prayer. So we come to the presence of God and all that stuff that's going on in us that would unmake our lives, we lay it before God. We God, God, look at this anger. Take it from me. Look at this fear. Take it from me. Look at this ambition. Take it from me. Look at this unforgiveness, this bitterness. Take it from me. And we find that in that place, the spirit comes in. And we're given a new heart and a new spirit. And I know that you're sitting there 
And you're going, but Andrew, I don't know how to pray. So I have awesome news for you. Nobody does. We're dealing with an infinite, invisible deity and trying to communicate. Nobody ever gets beyond being a beginner in prayer. <laughs> so you know what we do? We open this book. You just snatch a little time somewhere. Please do this. You find 15 minutes and you open this book and you don't read it. You let it read you. And what you'll find is all of a sudden the Lord will start digging up this stuff in you and you will have plenty to pray about. Oh God, here is this thing. Oh God, here is that thing. Oh God, please come in. And you pray honestly and simply out of that place. And I promise you, you'll experience the fleshy heart, number one. Number two, learn to welcome. Isn't that an awful word? You know, I was tempted this week as I was putting the message together. I was tempted to make point number two, uh, like cultivate a life of prayer. And then number two, uh, cultivate community. That's what I was going to make point number two as. But you know what I realized as I was sitting with that? That there are a whole bunch of people that have community in their lives, but they don't have correction. Yeah, it's a good point. I'm clapping for myself. Well done, Art. Thought that one through. We got community, but we don't have correction. And we've actually set up community so that we don't get any correction in our lives. So it becomes this sort of narcissistic echo chamber that just reflects back to us all the stuff that we wanted to do anyway. Well, <laughs> you got some repenting to do. And by the way, the reason that your life is a disaster is because nobody's telling you the truth. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 1. The person who loves correction loves knowledge. But he who hates correction is stupid. That's do you have people in your life who will tell you the God's honest truth about how you're doing? If you don't, you're setting yourself up for a failure. And I promise you, they're not going to come and find you. You have to ask for it. Those of you that are married, you got to be willing to hear it from your spouse. And if you can't hear it, by the way, from your spouse, you ain't going to hear it from anybody. So you just better get a humble heart inside your marriage. If you're married, if married, you better hear from your spouse. If you are single, you better surround yourself with friends that you have said to them. When you see me going astray, you see me taking a left turn, you see me bizarre in the head, you have permission to call me out because I need it. You might be saving my life. As they call you out, you submit to that. Do you know what will happen to your stony heart? Turn to a fleshy heart and you'll walk in righteousness. And number three, stay faithful in worship. Stay faithful in worship. We're not coming here again to entertain God. We're doing this because our lives depend on it. That's why, by the way, our services here are not a bunch of bells and whistles and a light show and smoke and fog machines and all that. What does that have to do with righteousness? What we're doing is we're opening ourselves up to the living God. And we're asking him to remake our lives. And so can you stand, church? And can we do that right now? Can we welcome the presence of the Spirit in? Into my heart. Into my heart. 
come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Would you do that, church? Just welcome the Spirit. Throw open the doors of your life. Jesus is kind. Jesus is good. Somebody told me one time, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. The Spirit isn't going to bully or push or shove. But what happens when you invite the Lord in is he comes in, he sits, and he eats with you. And it creates fellowship and communion. And he begins to talk to you about the things that matter. And he gives wisdom to you. And all of a sudden you find your life beginning to go right. And so we pray now, Jesus, come. By the power of your Spirit, come. We pray in this house this morning as we've opened our spirits up to you. We pray that you would displace anger, that you would displace fear, that you would displace greed, that you would displace lust and wayward desires. Would you displace every desire of hell in our lives? And would you help us fall in love again with righteousness and with the righteous one? You say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. And we're asking for that. Give us that hunger. And we remember before you, Lord Jesus, that on the night that you were betrayed, after you'd given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup and you said, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant right here. Gives you that fleshy heart. It's the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So, Jesus, you've promised that bread and cup would become body and blood. That somehow the resurrection, life-renewing power of God would come into our lives. And so we pray that as we take bread and cup to our lips, that it would be more than bread and cup. It would be union with Jesus. That we'd be remade by it. Granted, we're praying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. I'll invite the servers to come forward to serve communion this morning. If you're new with us, we exit to the right. You'll come forward. You'll receive a gluten-free cracker. Dip it in the cup and you can take it as you're heading back to your seat. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God. And they're given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.